Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Okay, quick reminder, what we are doing is spending this month leading up to Easter exploring um, Holy Week. Essentially what I've done is I've taken that Holy Week and I've expanded it out to an entire month and looking at the stories that show up in all four Gospels. So for obvious reasons, the Gospels give disproportionate amount of attention to the last week of Jesus' life. And there are certain events that are so important that they do appear in all four gospel accounts. Now, the traditional ones we recognize are the triumphant entry, of course, Palm Sunday, um, the institutional Lord's Supper, the Last Supper on Thursday, Good Friday, the cross, and then, of course, Easter Sunday, the resurrection. But what I'm doing this month is I'm looking at three other um, end-of-life events that appear in all four Gospels, but don't get the same attention that the more traditional ones tend to receive. So last week, we looked at Jesus anointed. This week, we are looking at Jesus arrested, which shows up in all four Gospels. Now, just here from the outset, consider how ridiculous that statement that I just made is. Jesus arrested. God arrested. How is it possible to arrest, capture, detain, overcome omnipotent strength? The answer, of course, is that it isn't possible unless he surrenders his strength. I got my final vaccine last week. Very excited about that. And when I uh, was at the appointment, I lifted up my shirt for them to give me the shot, and there were just bruises um, all over my arm, and the uh, paramedic that was giving me the shot said, my goodness, what happened to you? I said, well, I have four sons, and they like to end each day by beating me up. And he kind of looked at me and, and said, you let this happen? And I said, well, you know, we, we wrestle, and I throw them on the bed and stuff. But yeah, it does typically end with them piling on top of me and just wailing on my body. And, and he asked me a question that I probably should have thought through before at some point in my parenting. He looked at me and he says, why? And I said, good question. Why? I'm stronger than them. I'm bigger than them. Clearly, if I wanted to If I wanted it to stop, I could stop it in a moment. There has to be a reason. I am surrendering my strength to their much lesser strength. Now, part of it is obviously their joy and laughter. Um, 
you know, part of it is social sciences, developmental science that says it's good for boys developmentally to wrestle with their dad. There's a lot of reasons, I suppose, but the point I'm making is there has to be a reason. Otherwise, four boys, 12, 10, 8, and 4, would not be able to beat up a grown man. Now, question. What is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, doing getting arrested? We just take that for granted. But this is the first event of a sequences of events that we are going to be looking at over the coming weeks that should never, ever happen. So why is it happening? There has to be a reason or it would not be happening. And that's what we are here to explore this morning. What is Jesus doing getting arrested? To do that, we're going to see two things develop from our passage. Strength is seized and weakness is freed. Let's watch as strength is seized. There is one word here that is repeated several times in the passage. And the reason why I say strength is seized is the word the ESV translates as seized. Verse 48, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. Verse 50, then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. 55, day day after day I was in the temple courts, you had seized me. The emphasis here is that this is a turning point in the story. Where Jesus is now officially theirs. From this moment until he walks out of the tomb on Easter morning, he will be seized by the powers of this world. First, it will be the religious authorities. Then it will be the Roman authorities. And then it will be that ultimate authority, the authority of death. And all of that is meant to come as a surprise, even shock to the reader. If we, if we weren't so used to this story, and I know many of us are, obviously, but if we weren't so used to the story and we're just following along for the first time, reading about Jesus, we would recognize how crazy this turn of events is. You see, he has faced quite a bit of opposition, if you're familiar with the Gospels, right? But he hasn't broken a sweat. Natural Threats like incurable diseases and raging storms, demonic threats like a man possessed by a legion of demons, intellectual threats like debates with Sadducees and scribes and Pharisees, threats to his patience and the faithlessness and stubbornness of his disciples, and yet through it all, nothing has phased this man. Nothing. And the reason, of course, is that this is no mere man. This is fully man and fully God, and that makes a difference. This man they are seizing is divine omnipotence in the flesh. Speaking of my sons, one of them is studying planets and galaxies and whatnot in school, and, we, and he asked me a question about the sun this past week, and it caused us to get Google out and just kind of go on a little uh, escapade trying to comprehend the vastness of God's creation. We looked it up. The sun is a massive 25 million degree ball of heat and energy so bright that we can't look directly into it from 92 million miles away. And yet that sun is a relatively small star of 100 billion stars in our galaxies. And yet our galaxy is one of 100 billion galaxies and counting that's 1 billion trillion stars like our sun in the observable universe. Where did that come from? Where did all that energy originate? And maybe even more so, what's keeping this thing going? 
The Bible says Jesus. Hebrews 1, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the power grid that resources the energy of one billion trillion suns and counting. Quite literally, while he is being seized in our passage, he is at the same time upholding the entire universe. This whole scene is just dripping with satirical irony. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs. Oh, so you brought swords and clubs, that ought to do it. 48, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss, this is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Oh, you fooled him, Judas. Didn't see that one coming in his omniscience. Verse 51, behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Of course, Peter, right? You really think Jesus needs you to defend him, Peter? You know, thank God he's got you there with your little knife. In fact, Jesus says to Peter, what are you doing? You do realize I could ask my father and he would at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Put your sword away, Peter. The point is that this is ridiculous. A mob with swords and clubs to arrest the omnipotent one? A betrayer who thinks he's actually pulled one over? omnipotent one, a disciple who thinks he needs to protect the omnipotent one, but most ridiculous of all, it actually works, and omnipotence is arrested. How could this be? The answer is that it cannot be unless Jesus wants it to be, and apparently he does. 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures and the prophets might be fulfilled. Twice he says it to them. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the prophets be proven. This isn't an arrest. This is fulfillment. This is how the story must go because this is how Jesus himself has written the story even down to Judas's kiss. He is not bound by guards with swords and clubs. He is bound by the story written of him And the story is that Jesus has come not to unleash his power, but to lay aside his power. Why? Because what he has come to do can only come to pass, not through his strength exercised, but through strength laid aside. Having seen strength seized, let's look now at weakness freed. We've looked at just about the whole passage except for that last final clause there that is oh so crucial to the story. Look with me at the final words of 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. That little detail is actually the climax of a story that's been building in Matthew 26. After instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus says this, you will all fall away because of me. Now what gets noticed is that Peter responds by saying, not me, 
not me. If I have to die, I will will not deny you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter is indignant. He says, if I have to die with you, I will not forsake you. But what gets overlooked is that all the disciples said the same, not just Peter. So Jesus says, you will all leave me this very night. And then all of them said, even if we have to die, we will not leave you. Shortly thereafter, that very night, Jesus is rested and the story ends with all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus is easy to follow when he is commanding storms and casting out demons and healing the sick, silencing the Pharisees. Oh, how the disciples loved that Jesus. But the very first moment when things change, when Jesus is arrested, they turn on him without hesitation. But here's the greater point that will set the scene for the passion narrative we will be exploring in the coming weeks. Here's the greater point. They all got away, and that shouldn't have happened. Make no mistake, they are running because they are in real danger. We fail to realize this. They, they should be sharing the same fate as Jesus. In those days, when Rome wanted to put down an insurrection or a threat... Yes, of course, they would take out the leader, but also the inner circle of the leader, his followers as well. It should have been Jesus and his 12 standing trial, beaten, mocked, and hung together on 13 Roman crosses, and they knew it. They knew their close association with Jesus meant his fate would be their fate. So as soon as Jesus is captured, they are literally done with Jesus. Again, 56, all the disciples left him and fled. It's the word him there this week that really stung as I was studying it. Not they all left and fled. They left him and fled, meaning they're done with Jesus. After all they have seen and experienced, after all that he has done for them, after all their bravado, of words of undying loyalty, and now they want no association with him in any way, or as Peter will soon say, I don't know that man. Cowards. Cowards. Their pathetically fragile loyalty cannot withstand the first sign of opposition. And yet, let the reader understand, cowardice goes free while omnipotence is seized. Now, who are you in this passage? Hint, you're not omnipotent. You and I are the weak, failing cowards running off into the night, abandoning Jesus to endure the destiny that belongs to us. As we witness once again the passion of Jesus in the coming weeks, my prayer for you, the thought I want to constantly nag at you is this. That should be me. He shouldn't be arrested. You should be arrested on an ultimate level. But this is only the beginning. I want us to see him tried, condemned, beaten, mocked, and hung from a tree, and all along the way say to thyself, that should be me. But it's not you. And that, brothers and sisters, is the whole point. If you want a picture of this gospel we speak of so much at this church, 
the gospel Jesus came to announce and accomplish, then see the cowards flee off to safety while the Lord gives himself up to be arrested. The guards don't run after the disciples because they have the one they want. So weakness goes free because strength has been seized. Now, by way of application, are you okay with that arrangement? I'm going to apply this passage assuming that you're not. I'm just going to assume that you have a hard time admitting you are the cowardice deniers of Jesus running off into the night. I'm going to assume this morning that it is very hard for us to accept our weakness, our failures, our inadequacies, our insufficiencies, our immorality. I'm just going to assume that far from being comfortable with telling the truth about ourselves, our days are spent vainly trying to hide the truth. You're certainly not alone. After all, what is our world if not a silly competition to prove our strength? But if you want to follow Jesus, then you are going to have to learn to tell the truth. Tell the truth about yourself. Not just that initial moment when you choose to follow Jesus, where you have to admit what is true of yourself. No, no. But in every moment in this daily fight to follow Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Because in my experience as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus myself for a while now, we are comfortable with the initial diagnosis of weakness that the gospel demands, but then we change the arrangement. We pervert the gospel into a referendum of our own strength. Here's what I mean. For example, deep down, we truly believe that this is all based upon the strength of our faith. And that's why our doubts are so deeply troubling to us. Deep down, we believe that all of this is based on the strength of our feelings. And so we are deeply disturbed and we don't feel assured. We don't feel his presence. We don't feel his love. Deep down, we truly believe that all of this is based upon the strength of our devotion. And so we are deeply disturbed that we aren't doing enough. Surely I should be doing more Christian stuff. Deep down, we truly believe that all of this is based on the strength of our morality, our righteousness. And so we are deeply disturbed by how much evil we are capable of. But that core assumption that all of this revolves around our strength is itself the great lie. Literally, it has nothing, and I cannot emphasize nothing enough, it has nothing to do with your strength. Please take a moment and breathe in the good news of what I just told you. Wouldn't it be the best news of all that while every arena of life is dependent upon your strength and ability, the ultimate and eternal arena has nothing to do with your strength. Can you believe that you're allowed to be weak? Can you believe that you're allowed to quit pretending? Let's be honest, you're dying to do so. I know it. The facade is exhausting and you want so badly to just throw your hands up and say, I give up. I'm tired of pretending my failures, my sins, my doubts, my fears. It's just all too much. And you're right. It is too much for you, but not for the omnipotent Lord Jesus. You are allowed to be weak because Jesus is so strong. 
actually to the passage to be more precise. You are allowed to be weak because Jesus, who is strong, chose to be weak so that now his strength can be devoted to your weakness. There are times when wrestling with my sons where they, where they, they do get my strength. My strength does come out and it's when something goes wrong. One of my boys falls off the bed or something and the joy and laughter quickly turns into painful cry. Immediately, I'm not the weak one in the room anymore. I grab them. I hold them tight in my arms until they are calmed. So it's not that they don't know my strength. It's that they experience my strength always for their good and not their harm. Our closing hymn this morning is, He Will Hold Me Fast. And let me tell you, nothing will ever break that hold. He's too strong. He's too mighty. But in order for us to be held by his strength, in order for us to have the audacity to close this worship service singing without hesitation, he is going to hold me fast. No matter what, he will hold me fast. And that's what that hymn does. It goes through everything you can name and just says, nope, he will hold me fast. In order for that to be true, he first had to surrender his strength, meaning if he's going to hold us fast, First, he had to be held fast by the powers infinitely less powerful than him. The rest is only the beginning, friends. If you think this passage is crazy that they are arresting the Lord of strength, wait until they condemn perfect spotless righteousness. Wait until the shoulders upon which the foundation of the world rests are too scourged and weary to carry across. Wait until the one who holds up all creation is being held up by nails. Wait until the voice that spoke reality into existence can barely utter the simplest of cries, that childlike cry, I'm thirsty. Wait until the source of life surrenders to death. Wait until eternal omnipresence is confined to a barren tomb. And yet, as we behold his supposed defeat that brings, that begins with, with today's arrest, as we behold this, what we will discover instead is his greatest triumph. We will discover that his greatest act of power is the surrender of his power. The only thing more glorious than his strength is his strength seized that the weak might go free. Let me thank him. Father, we want to thank you for sending your son to take on this gospel and the demands of this gospel that should not be. We are overwhelmed, Jesus, with what you have done for us. And as we enter into the coming weeks, Leading up to three Sundays from now when this sanctuary will be filled with flowers and trumpets. Until then, as we watch your descent into weakness for our sake, may it land on us fresh. May we marvel at the story in ways like we never have before. And we trust what you say about this communion act we're about to partake in. That you say whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup... You proclaim the Lord's death. Proclaim it, Lord. Proclaim it to our hearts and souls this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.